This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Immunity for Assad. Could this be the solution for Syria? No final decision on the Trident nuclear deterrent, so why is the government awarding contracts which could lead to its replacement? We'll attempt to explain the proposals to change armed forces' pensions. What will the British Army look like in future? And why has the Dalai Lama been to Aldershot today? Could diplomacy bring peace to Syria? Reports today suggest Britain and America are drawing up plans to offer President Assad safe passage to Switzerland to take part in peace talks. According to the Daily Telegraph and other broadsheets, the idea has come from discussions between David Cameron and Barack Obama at the G20 summit in Mexico this week. It's believed that Russia may have softened its stance on international involvement. Well, I'm joined by the former British ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green, as well as our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Sir Andrew, we spoke to you about the situation in Syria back in February and not much has changed since then, perhaps really worsened. Could offering immunity to Assad be the answer? Well, it's certainly not of itself the answer. I think it's a better approach, if I may say so, because I think we have been wrong up till now to focus on Assad himself and how we want to get rid of him and so on and so forth. Um, He has never run Syria. His father did, but he has never done so. He's been more of a figurehead. And removing him would have no effect. He would just be replaced by a bunch of generals and intelligence uh, chiefs. Uh, But uh, if what we're now talking about is a negotiation with the regime, and he, of course, is the figurehead, then that seems to me to be um, a better approach. So if it was a negotiation with the regime, what would be the kind of negotiation that would be going on? Well, there's a difficulty, of course. Uh, We are on the edge of a civil war, not to say a sectarian war, uh, such as we've seen in the Lebanon uh, 25 years ago, which was ghastly, and Iraq quite recently. So the situation is very close to spinning out of control. Uh, I think the the only way that uh, we could hope to, uh, to, 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 to put some kind of break on that uh, is to make some steps towards implementing the, the Annan plan, which is a pretty simple plan, really, starting with uh, withdrawal of uh, heavy weapons from cities and so on. But... Uh, it rather looks as though both sides think it's in their own interest to continue fighting. Uh, The government, because they don't want to risk losing control of of cities or parts of them, uh, and the opposition, uh, because they don't want the government to have the opportunity to to regroup and maybe carry out a wave of arrests and so on. So this is a very late moment, but it's better to talk than, than not. And what kind of role is Russia playing? Does it hold the key? Russia has very substantial influence in in, uh, Syria. Um, Perhaps it holds part of the key. Russia and Iran, of course, are their two main allies with a bit of help from China. But it's the Russians who actually have uh, produced a significant amount of of weapons, ammunition and training. Um, It's the Russians who find that Syria is their only remaining ally in the Middle East. Uh, so they've got a lot at stake, both of them, and, and the Russians do have serious influence in Damascus. W- were Assad to go to Switzerland and be given some kind of immunity, um, you say it would sort of hopefully be dependent on some kind of deal with who's left behind in Syria. What do you see potentially happening? Well, I think he would, uh, if he accepts, and he would, he would have the authority of the other generals to go, and he would want to explore, I'm sure, 
what was on offer, uh, what the uh, other side were prepared to offer in terms of um, weapon supplies. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I think we, we have to be even-handed on this, and that's something the Russians have said for a long time. We can't, on the one hand, tell the Russians not to send weapons, and on the other hand, encourage the Saudis and the Gutteries uh, to provide weapons to the opposition. Uh, I'm strongly opposed to that. I think that that is just throwing petrol on a very dangerous fire. Christopher Lee, um, Sandra was saying that uh, Assad is not the person who's really in control. Just explain what's going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing. Well, the one key factor is perhaps Assad's brother, Mahaya, who commands four division and also has is the military strength of it. And this is when you get to the major problem. Supposing you did say, OK, Assad, we would like to actually do a bigger deal than anything you've imagined, and that is that you quietly leave um, uh, Syria. The lot has got to go. Uh, as Sandra says, he doesn't run Syria anyway, and therefore, should he go, that's, that would be not necessarily acceptable, but who is left? The other thing when um, Sandra was saying about, you know, you've got to be pretty even-handed about this in other aspects. You've got to accept that not all Syrians are against Assad. Now, that may be for sectarian reasons or whatever. There's a second part of this. Not all Syrians believe that the so-called opposition wouldn't, if they were in control, might not lead to, a, say, a bloodbath. The important thing to remember, and I seem to remember from February... Uh, uh, Sandra was saying, you know, don't go in militarily. This is not Libya or whatever. That's been proved to be absolutely right. The second part of this becomes even more important. And that is, if you can't go in, what do you do diplomatically? There are signs that Putin, President Putin, is last coming around to making not big decisions, but noises, sympathetic noises with the Americans. And that becomes very important. So, Andrew, why is Russia making those sympathetic noises? Well, there are two reasons for that. Uh, one is they're getting quite a lot of stick in the Middle East for the support that they have given to, to Assad. Um, those people, there are a lot of people who don't like the way in which uh, Sunnis are being murdered, although, of course, nowadays it's wrong on both sides. The other reason, of course, is, as has always been the case in the Middle East, the superpowers, as they used to be, uh, have many other interests at stake. Uh, and uh, the, both Putin and Obama will see the Syrian... Uh, problem, to put it mildly, uh, in a much wider context of the relationship between those two powers. Uh, Sandra, just briefly, um, if you were alluding earlier this is perhaps the final opportunity um, to, to, to resolve the situation in Syria, if it isn't resolved, what could the consequences be, both for Syria and wider afield? Extremely serious. I think if this spins out of control, we will have uh, one group murdering another group, uh, and uh, this, once that starts and it has almost started now, it's extremely difficult to stop, and certainly can't be stopped by foreign troops. I mean, Syrians know at a glance what sect someone belongs to, and certainly as soon as they open their mouths, whereas foreign troops, as is often the case in these situations, don't know one from the other, even if they could do anything about it. So uh, a sectarian war would be extremely serious within Syria, but it would also bring in the Saudis supporting one side and the Iranians supporting another, uh, so you get a regional conflict as well, and you would then get a, a conflict of interest uh, between Russia and the United States. So you're looking at a rapidly deteriorating situation, both on the ground, with horrible, 
horrible consequences uh, and a rapidly deteriorating uh, diplomatic situation within the region. All right, Sandra Green, thanks for your time today. This is BFBS SIGREP. The government has insisted it hasn't made a final decision on replacing the Trident nuclear deterrent, despite awarding £1.1 billion contract for reactor cores. Earlier this week, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond announced a deal which will see new reactors being built by Rolls-Royce at its plants at Rainsway in Derby, as well as an 11-year refit of the factory. The decision is the most public statement yet that the government is perhaps committed to a full-scale replacement of Trident, despite objections by the Liberal Democrats. Earlier, I spoke to Professor Eric Grove, Director of the University of Salford's Centre for International Security and War Studies. I asked him why the government has ordered the reactors four years before the final decision on replacing Vanguard-class submarines will be made. Well, we need the new, the new reactors anyway because criticisms have been made of the existing reactors. Uh, they're safe, but they're not as safe as perhaps given, given the very high standards of nuclear safety they ought to be. And so a new reactor is, is required. Uh, we're getting it, the PWR-3, so-called uh, uh, pressurised water reactor 3. It's an American design, and Rolls-Royce are being set up to produce it. It will go into the last of the Astute-class submarines, the A-class submarines, and then presumably into the first of the Trident successor submarines. But I think the reason that the, the Liberals were able to go along with this was that if we continue to build nuclear-powered submarines uh, to take some, say, cruise missile deterrent, or uh, then uh, we will need the new reactor. So that's the way they've uh, reconciled themselves so to it. it simply has to be done this way. It's got nothing to do with timing for procurement for Trident. Well, it has a bit, but, uh, I mean, one could see the uh, last... the the. Uh, the last of the Astute's HMS Ajax as, as a sort of test bed for the new submarines. And it is connected because the, the successor Trident submarines will allow us to continue building nuclear-powered submarines at the same drumbeat, as they say. And if we didn't build uh, Trident submarines, Trident replacements, then we'd have to build new Astute's if we were going to keep Barrow and Furnace, BAE in business, just over the bay from where I live in Blackpool, uh, and uh, not cause people to be laid off and us lose the expertise in building nuclear-powered submarines. So, so even the Trident decision has as much to do with our capacity to build nuclear-powered submarines as it has to do with our maintenance of the nuclear deterrent. Do you think we can read anything into it, though, in terms of any decision on replacing Trident? Has it effectively been made already, or is that going too far? I think it probably is going too far. I mean, the government insists that it won't be main gate, as they say in modern procurement plans, until 2016. Um, I think there is, uh, on the Conservative side of the coalition, the hope that this this starts a momentum. I think some press reports, though, have been a bit uh, strong when they've said, well, now so much money's been spent that they can't go through uh, with the Trident Trident. Re- a replacement. Uh, they've quoted the aircraft carrier. In fact, the aircraft carrier wasn't uh, the second aircraft carrier wasn't built because it would be it would be cheaper to build it than cancel it. It was built because we needed the carrier program to keep the shipbuilding uh, industry in business. And it's rather the same argument as far as submarine building is concerned. If we don't continue to build nuclear powered submarines, and the plan is we will build three or four ballistic missile firers after the seventh of the astute class, uh, then we're going to have to continue to build some kind of nuclear powered submarine if we're going to stay in that kind of business. How How likely do you think it is that the current review, which the Liberal Democrats insisted upon, to look for a viable alternative to Trident will actually come up with anything? Well, I I don't think it will come up with a viable alternative for Trident. I mean, this was done by the last government. There are various alternatives. As I say, a front-runner would be putting nuclear-tip crews 
missiles into uh, a torpedo firing, normally torpedo firing, well, in fact, indeed now cru- cruise missile firing submarines with, with conventional warheads. The Liberals might uh, prefer that. But it wouldn't give you anything like the capability that the Trident missile system gives you. I mean, I, I doubted whether we should go for Trident back in the 1980s. I said so in one of my first books because I thought of the opportunity costs and other parts of the naval program. That is still an important argument. But on the other hand, I, I've had a, something, a road to Damascus or perhaps a road to Aldermaston conversion, uh, that in <laughs> fact it's, it's, it's probably the best, the most cost-effective system to continue with the Trident missiles, which after all we get on very reasonable terms from the United States as part of a much larger stockpile. So you do think we need a nuclear deterrent? Yes, I mean, I think, I, I, although I, I don't have um, any children, if I did, I'd be a bit worried about them going forward into a world where the likelihood is there will be more nuclear powers, uh, where nuclear weapons might get in some rather unstable countries' hands without Britain having a minimum deterrent. And what we plan to maintain is, in fact, a minimum deterrent, uh, less in capability, at least, well, not, not perhaps less in capability, but less in terms of numbers of warheads, say, than the Israelis have got. Uh, and uh, I, I think that it is a, a insurance. Um, as my wife, as a layperson in these things that has become increasingly informed over the last few years puts it it's basically you pay money for insurance and it's I think a kind of basic national insurance policy. That was Professor Eric Grove, Director of the University of Salford Centre for International Security and War Studies. Uh, Christopher Lee, just take us through what has to happen practically and politically for Trident to be renewed. The decision will not be taken until after 2016. The decision has to be taken by the next government, whichever it is. If it were to be another coalition government, that would be even more difficult. The Liberals are not going to vote for a Trident system, i.e. one with a nuclear warhead. Now, the thing to remember about the decision this week, that 1.1 billion is going for new core reactor development, is that the difference between... This is all about nuclear power, i.e. how to power the machines, the boats... It's not about So it's okay weaponry. for the astute class, obviously. And that's okay for the... Last of the astute class, first, if they do replace them, and that is the decision. But forget about it almost until 2016, although half the, half the Tory cabinet have already taken that decision in the way that Mer- uh, Eric Grove did. Sit rep with Still to come, proposals to change armed forces pensions. How could they affect those being made redundant? And the Gurkhas turn out to see the Dalai Lama in Aldershot. BFBS Sit rep. The head of army equipment has told BFBS it will be a challenge to spread the specialist equipment bought for Afghanistan across the whole army. He was talking about what might happen to the urgent operational requirements bought for the campaign. Our reporter, Will Inglis, spoke to Major General Kerry Wilkes, Director Land Equipment in Defence Equipment and Support. Uh, DVD is our one opportunity during the year to get industry and the MOD together to look at equipment in the land environment. And it's a great way both for defence, those working in defence, to see what technologies and capabilities are out there and for industry to demonstrate what they can do. And the Millbrook uh, location here provides a unique opportunity for this to be done in a practical environment with uh, an opportunity, for example, to go out onto an off-road circuit with some of the vehicles that are on display. Of course you are director land equipment and now that PR12 is behind us there's a little bit more clarity for industry than there has been recently. Yes, so the recent announcement by the Secretary of State of the PR12 programme has meant that we can now start planning our future programme in a little bit more detail. 
early stages yet. Uh, some aspects are a bit clearer, such as the armoured vehicle pipeline, and that's really good news for the Army particularly, to have the funding for these key equipments confirmed, and many of those are represented here at the show today. So um, we have, for instance, behind us Foxhound, but there's also some of the UOR vehicles for Afghanistan. Now, Foxhound is included in this 5.5 billion, but the UOR vehicles aren't, yet there's an expectation some of them might survive. So Foxhound, although delivered under uh, really testing UOR timeframes, is a core program, and the vehicles will definitely come back into the core program, and that's why we've seen some funding in the armoured vehicle pipeline for support in the longer term. And that's really great news. Foxhound is a fantastic vehicle, and I'm delighted that we now see it deployed in Afghanistan, and the Secretary of State announced that over the weekend, um, and it will significantly enhance uh, the capabilities that we have and protect our soldiers. But the other UOR vehicles, I'm not trying to trap you into telling me which ones we're keeping and how many and so on, but um, that won't be funded from the core. That'll come from this contingency money that was announced as part of the PR12 process. Yes, and, and having invested so much into our protective mobility fleet on operations, uh, clearly uh, we would like to uh, bring a lot of this equipment back into the core program. Uh, it's uh, very high standard, it's great equipment, it's serving us well in Afghanistan. So we're working at the moment with the rest of the MOD to, uh, and with the Army to identify what the priorities are for bringing those equipments into the core program, what sort of costs will be involved and then to identify funding within the program. Just finally, the, the soldier in Afghanistan will be very uh, aware, away from vehicles, that from head to toe he's dressed in urgent operational requirements and they are pretty Gucci. Should he worry that we might go back to, I don't know, the 90s when some of the equipment dated from even 20 years before then? As you say, we've done a fantastic job uh, over the last few years to equip our soldiers in Afghanistan and in the training for Afghanistan to the, the really high standards, world-class standards. And, and again, you'll see a lot of that at, here at DVD. Clearly, it's going to be a challenge to spread that out across the entire army, but certainly the scale of uh, the equipment in the dismounted space is uh, uh, going to be enough, I think, to see quite a lot of this in training as well. That was Major General Kerry Wilkes, Director, Land Equipment and Defence Equipment and Support, speaking to our reporter Will Inglis. Well, of course, the kind of kit supplied to the Army will depend on its size, structure and the expectations placed upon it. According to the independent newspaper, a blueprint for the future of the service called Army 2020 plans to cut it into two forces called a reaction and an adaptable force while relying more on undercover special operations, surveillance and cyber warfare. Christopher Lee, what does the government want the army to be capable of doing post-2020? Okay, up until sort of a few years ago, the army was structured, and part of it still is, for state-to-state operations. It's a hangover from the Cold War. You know, they're the Russians, here we are. That's what's likely to happen. Now the word is asymmetric. In other words, you go into different organisations or different different forms of conflict. Um, So therefore, you've got to have rapid reaction And if you have rapid reaction, you expand uh, your capability of doing things quickly and doing it lightly. Then you have to have a thing called the SFGP, which is the Special Forces Support Group. Uh, They have to support it. You then have to have a reserve group doing largely jobs which are left where the gaps are left behind. So for this, you probably end up with, I don't know, seven brigades, seven infantry brigades, etc., other stuff you start cut, you, you start cutting out or you reduce. Uh, but that fundamentally, as far as the army is concerned, is the job they're going to have to try and do. 
find something which they've got to go into and they didn't intend to go into. Therefore, you're quite capable, if you've got this rapid reaction or something similar, to say, listen, we've spotted that as a problem. We're being asked to sort it. You can't do it with the old-fashioned, you know, 900 tanks romping across the North German plain. So is this what we're talking about, this reaction force and then this adaptable force, which has all the backing behind the scenes that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, the adaptable force is, is, is perhaps something which you can use for all sorts of things. You've still got to deploy people, for example, to Cyprus. You've still got to do a six-month turnaround in, let's say, I know, the, the Falklands or, or whatever. So you've got those fundamental jobs that you've got to carry out. And this is where you might be using more reservists? Uh, I suspect not so many reservists. You can infiltrate reservists if you like, but you're still going to have to use reservists, for example, if if you get into it, if you get into a fighting war with an enemy, you've got to reserve. Uh, you use your reservists for medics, interrogators, linguists, etc., as well as reinforced in the infantry role. Um, if it's right what you're saying, and I presume it is, that um, more there'll be more reliance on undercover special operations, surveillance, and cyber warfare. Is that going to change the kind of people recruited? Um, I think it's going to. It's not so much changing the sort of people recruited because they're already recruited. But what it'll do is is change the emphasis, give it to a separate command rather than the director of special forces or whatever. But it's the sort of thing that it's most reasonable to have to do. I mean, for example, if you found uh, you found a new Afghanistan, which we're heading for in Africa, in Malawi, but for it, example, it, it, that's when you might need to have people on the ground to say, right, I've got to get in there, I've got to do the same job as special forces do, but we're going to be, because we're in the asymmetric warfare, we might find ourselves being asked to do it more in more places. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Well, new recruits to the armed forces may have to work five years longer before they can start claiming their pensions under cost-saving plans being considered by the Ministry of Defence. Proposals out for consultation would see service personnel have to work to 45 before becoming eligible for the so-called early departure payment. Members of the Army, Navy and RAF can currently claim the payment at 40, providing they've done 18 years service. Well, Major General John Morbick is the General Secretary of the Forces Pension Society and joins me now. Thanks for your time today. Um, pensions are baffling at the best of times for most people. Can you explain what the situation is now uh, and what the proposed changes are? Yeah, let me just say that um, you introduce this as a cost-saving by the MOD this is part of the broad thrust across the whole of the public sector to change pension schemes. Indeed. So, it, so it, it has got, I'm afraid, mixed in this week with a lot of newspaper speculation that this is specifically related to redundancy and saving costs. So what can people in the armed forces claim at the moment in terms of pensions? The uh, people at the moment have two very good pension schemes. Both the 1975 scheme and the 2005 scheme are at the top of the range of value of the public sector. And people can be reassured that they are on very good pension schemes. And of course, it's as, as I say, best in the public sector, and that's what we're aiming at for a new scheme. That's what we from the Forces Pension Society will hope to see. Uh, what do you think about the new ideas that have been bandied around this week then? All of the, well, the, the, there are three things that have been bandied around this week. One is redundancy, one is pensions, and one is the new employment model. And it's quite important to disentangle all of those. I can only comment on what is both leaked and what is speculative because at the moment nothing formal has come out describing the new pension scheme, but there is a consultation and the results are coming in on that. A, so su a suggestion, though, that you may have to be older than 40 to become eligible for the so-called early departure payment. That is quite probably quite likely, but let's take the case of those who are now having to leave when they've done 22 years. Many of them resent leaving at the 22-year point and apply for any further engagement, variable engagement, 
Um, they want more time. So this is not entirely unwelcome to the armed forces that they might actually serve for a bit longer in the in the decade of their 40s. You, you uh, said, this isn't a bad thing at all. You talked about how, how good the pension schemes are at the moment. And, and of course, the MOD, like says, unlike other government employees, those on the forces benefit from a non-contributory scheme. Uh, presumably that is, is a very positive thing. No, that's disingenuous. It's, and every time it's mentioned in Parliament, we do a ritual complaint. All armed forces pay is reduced by a so-called abatement rate, which is currently of four, at 4%. I've seen it go down in my lifetime from 14% to 11%, to 7% to 4%. So pay is reduced by 4%. Remember that in some parts of the public sector, there is a contribution towards pension of 3%. So in that 4% abatement rate, that includes many, many factors, over 20 factors, pluses and minuses, but it also includes the value of a good pension scheme. So it's not quite true to say that it's a non-contributory scheme, but we do hope that the next scheme will not be a direct contribution from pay. If that's the case, there will be a case for a pay rise for the armed forces. The proposals are out for consultation. Is the Forces Pension Society taking part in that consultation? Yes, very much so. Uh, we are, of course, we, we, we live not very far away from the Ministry of Defence. We meet and talk and our advice is taken. Uh, we brief about 12,000 people a year and in all our briefings we're encouraging members of the armed forces to get involved with the consultation, master the issues and make their views plain. You mentioned, so, sorry, go on. And we also, of course, are encouraging through the rest of our communications media, website, e-newsletters, uh, the Pennant magazine. In all of these we're encouraging people, as many people as possible, to um, get involved in the consultation. You, me you mentioned earlier about uh, redundancies being one of the things that was bandied about in, in this context this week, the story being that a number of families have approached the various organisations, including the Army Families Federation, in the wake of the tranche two of the Army Redundancies Cross, that uh, service personnel have been made redundant, uh, who might have been within sometimes a few days of qualifying for the instant payment. Um, the MOD has said that there's nothing to do with that decision to make them redundant, but what kind of advice are you giving to those families? Well, we're saying to them, we will, we will guide them in any action they wish to take. But we have sought and received assurances from the armed forces. Well, you say any, any action, you think there might be legal action? Well, they can appeal. There is an appeals process and, uh, and we will support them in that. But um, there is, there, there, we have had assurances that proximity to an immediate pension point has not been one of the considerating, considerate factors of consideration before making people redundant. And we are asking for certain assurances on that in a question in the House of Lords this All right. week. General Secretary of the Forces Pension Society, Major General John Morbick, thanks for your time today. Now, why would one of the world's most peaceful men make a point of visiting the military town of Aldershot during a tour of the UK? 7,000 people turned out to see the Tibetan spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, today. Among them, our reporter, Tim Cooper. I spoke to him earlier. Well, it's very much been a festival of everything to do with the Buddhist faith, the Nepali community, and indeed Aldershot in a wider context. Uh, events have been going on here since 7am this morning. Some 7,000 people packed inside Aldershot Town's football ground. And of course, they're all here to see one man, the spiritual leader of the Buddhist faith, and that is His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He arrived at 11.30 this morning and spoke for some, some time about the key tenets of the Buddhist faith. He encouraged people to respect and honour their 
their tradition and he spoke about how pleased he is to see the Nepali community here in Aldershot and indeed the UK continuing to maintain their traditions. Um, after that he, he met many members of the assembled crowd here and uh, it's really left a, a deep impact on everyone who's here today. Indeed and it sounds like a lasting one as it's still ongoing there. Um, what kind of reaction did you get from Gurkhas in Aldershot today? Well, the Gurkha community tell me they're exceptionally honoured that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has come to see them, and they really do see it like that. I've spoken to a number of people who are ex-Gurkhas who travel back down to Aldershot today, and they just say, look, I didn't ever expect this could happen to me. He is, after all, the leader of a world faith, yet he's chosen to come to what is a small Hampshire market town to see me. And it's left a deep and profound impact on those members of the Gurkha community and indeed the wider Nepali community and Aldershot community. Tim Cooper reporting there. Um, Christopher, what do you think of this visit? The world visit is very important, these visits he makes. Uh, there is a great disillusionment. It's not my view, it's just public opinion in world leaders. He is one of the few world leaders that has this sort of credibility left. This is why, you know, when Tib says, people are saying, you know, he's bothered to come see me. The other thing which is fascinating is the Chinese are going bananas, absolutely bananas over About this. About this visit. Yeah, they're saying, you mustn't entertain this man. We find him as a threat. He is a political threat to, uh, to China, and therefore we object very, very strongly. I mean, quite frankly, the Foreign Office is just bullying two fingers up to the Chinese. Uh, now, just before we go, Christopher, and we were talking earlier about the future of the army, the future shape of the army. Um, Defence planning for the future, um, do you think that everything is considered rightly? You, you have a theory, don't you, of, of what's perhaps left off the agenda sometimes? OK, one of the, uh, it's, it's World Refugee Week, actually, uh, this week. But um, one of the biggest problems in world stability is about three million people who are on the march. Why we're talking just now, in 60 seconds, eight people have done a runner from war zones, from suppression, etc. If you go to Mali, which I was saying earlier was going to be, a lot of people believe, the new Afghanistan, Mali in Africa. Um, and you say that because? Uh, because there's a civil war. Uh, you've got uh, Turek, who are, uh, who, who are demanding independence. You've also got Islamicists. You've got 300,000 women refugees in the north. That means there are about 800,000 children as well. Mm. All the ingredients for warfare. What is going to be the future of the British Army? Asymmetric warfare. That's the sort of thing they're going to have to take care of. They'll be asked to take care of. Christopher Lee, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS SITREP or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now.